Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Gabby Rosen Podcast. Hello and welcome to that Gabby Rosen Podcast, part of the Acast Creator Network. Dame Jacqueline Wilson is my guest this week and she is always such a joy to speak to. She is a big part of all of our lives through her brilliant books, that of course include Tracy Beaker and Hetty Feather. She talks so openly about her childhood and how nobody believed she'd ever become an author. She strongly believes in following your dreams and how sheer determination got her through. We discuss her health and her transplant and I know she'll help so many people by the way she talks about it all. We also chat about how important our imaginations are. She really is a one-off. And if you ever get a chance to meet her, you too will come away feeling like you spent time with a truly magical woman. I hope you enjoy this chat and her magic rubs off on you too. Her new book, Baby Love, is very moving, very beautiful and is available now. Please, can I ask you a favour? Would you mind following and subscribing, please? By clicking the follow or subscribe button. This is completely and utterly free, by the way. And you can also rate and review on Apple Podcasts, which is the purple app on your iPhone or iPad. Simply scroll down to the bottom of all of the episodes. I know there have been quite a few now. And you'll see the stars where you can tap and rate and also please write a review. Thank you so much. So you're one of the most borrowed authors on the planet. It makes me sound well thumbed. I which love that. Would be quite a good description of me that I'm getting older. <laughs> Jacqueline Wilson, well thumbed. <laughs> yes, it's possibly not the right connotation. But there we go. That's why I love you. Every time I speak to you, you always start a bit naughty. It's great. Um, it, how does that feel? Because if the little girl. Jacqueline, who loved being surrounded by books, knew that everybody was surrounded by your books. What would that little girl now say? It was my dream fantasy. And uh, when I used to walk to school, none of the children I, I knew lived where I did. So I had a long walk by myself to school and you know, made up imaginary things. But I also had this game that... I interviewed myself and I was grown up and I was a famous author. And so there's still that little girl somewhere inside me. And it still, after all these years, doesn't seem quite real. And it's so odd. Um, if I happen to see a child on a train or something reading a book, not so much now because mostly they're just peering at a screen, but certainly in the past, coming across... Um, somebody actually reading my book or now having lovely 20-somethings recognise me and stop me in the street and say, oh, you were part of my childhood. I mean, that is so touching and so lovely. I never thought it would happen. I mean, it's like wishing you were a you know, brain surgeon or a ballerina or whatever. I mean, that's what I wanted to do more than anything in the world. But it was also a fantasy. And um, shows how I had all my ambitions into being a writer, but my actual sort of fallback job was going to be a hairdresser mm. because I always had very short hair and my mum wouldn't let me grow it. She said it was the wrong kind of hair, which she was probably right about. Um, so I begged all my friends that had long hair to let me undo their plaits and style it and muck around with it. And um, any doll that I had became bald quite quickly because <laughs> brushed and brushed. And so that was what I was going to do if I couldn't make it as a writer. And most people that knew me thought, right, OK, she's going to be a hairdresser. She'll possibly be quite good at it. Nobody thought I would ever, ever. Really? Nobody be a believed in you? No. I mean, 
I I wasn't a promising child. I I couldn't say boo to a goose. Um, I did quite good essays and compositions at school, but you know I was. It, it sounds pathetic, but brought up in a council estate, and people like me weren't writers. And certainly, my my parents and my my school um, didn't even think about you know perhaps it was possible to go to university or anything like that. And people who write, wrote books, it was considered then, you know, were, were posh and and high achieving and um, and just so wonderful that things have changed. <laughs> it really is. Gosh, there's so many things that, from just the bit that you said there, the, the following your dreams, I, I uh, you might have just seen me well up because... Um, I find it incredibly overwhelming when you tell the story of when you were a child and you knew what you wanted to do. And from I have exactly the same when I was three. There was I only ever wanted to be in television, and I was also shy. And and but I did have my parents saying, "Follow your dreams," but you didn't have people believing that you could do it. So. I wonder where that that pull carried on from. I think, I think it was a very strange combination of being very shy, and yet also very determined. And when I was seventeen, um, and just finishing a rather dire typing course, because uh, that's what they did with girls like me in those days, I saw an advert for teenage writers in one of the London newspapers. And I thought, why not try? And I had, my parents had given me a very small portable typewriter for a birthday present. So I tried writing a story, a funny story, even though I thought they'll want a, a kind of Mills and Boone romance. And bizarrely, somebody on this potential magazine, which came out the next year, which happened to be Jackie, Jackie yes. which was lovely, they thought, hmm, this funny kid in just outside London's got got a little bit of flair or something and then so after I'd written them a few more they actually offered me a job up in Dundee this was DC Thompson's and um, never been to Scotland before and my mum was a bit uncertain about it and insisted that I go to live in a hostel and uh, I ended up in the Church of Scotland Girls Hostel. Did you? <laughs> and the matron there was very fierce. I mean, I can understand why, because if you have a whole house full of mad girls between 15 and 22, I mean, you've got to be quite strict. We were only allowed to see boyfriends twice a week up to, um, I think it was 10.30. No kissing on the doorstep. <laughs> and then... It was a wonder we actually got boyfriends because we were only allowed two baths a week. And even then they were lukewarm because the, the hot water system couldn't stay hot um, very long. So we had to take it in turns. And if it was your bath night, I mean, you were wise to miss out supper because then you could charge <laughs> bathroom. I mean, it was really primitive. Um, and because she didn't have any actual spare dormitories or the cubicles, which were just little beds with a sort of just like hospitals, really, with some curtains that you pulled around, um, she actually cleared out a bit of storage stuff from the linen cupboard, which was bigger than certainly my lemon cupboard at home. And I was squashed in there on the camp. Goodness me. I mean, I see where all of your stories all come from. <laughs> I mean, it, it, uh, that was a really super thing to happen because it was the only in winter, the warm, warm room. And so everybody wanted to be my friends. They could come and crouch in the linen cupboard How long cupboard were you there for? I in think, the linen cupboard? <laughs> I think it was about nine months. And then um, another girl whose roommate was leaving to get married um, said, right, you and me, Jackie, we'll go and share a flat. And I was quite excited by this idea. But in actual fact, we lived in two rooms in digs with a very, very fierce landlady who had that thing where 
she couldn't just wash the kitchen floor once. She had to do it at least seven times. And I was scrupulously careful after I'd had a bath in the communal bathroom to sort of vim it all the way round and get it as clean as clean. Um, but then she hauled me back inside and called me really nasty names and said, look at the bath. And I said, but I've cleaned it. But you didn't dry it. So I had to oh kneel down and dry it with my towel. So it wasn't luxury living, but it was good for me. And I learned to that you can't just sit and wait and hope somebody will make friends with you. What you have to do is be bold. And if you hear some other girls in the hostel or at the office saying, oh, we're going dancing tonight, you just got to pipe up and say, can I come too? And nearly always they'll say yes. And if they say no, well, you know, so what? You can try another bunch. And that way I made some good friends there and uh, had various boyfriends, which was a crafty move because <laughs> in the hostel, all the other girls who lived in the countryside too far to travel into for work they went home and so I was all on my own and on Sunday even the cook went off home and there was no food for me she left sort of Saturday sandwiches and maybe a bit of leftover crumble or something in the fridge and that was all I had to eat on a Sunday. And yeah, I had no cooking facilities. So um, you got yourself a boyfriend. It sounds ever so calculating. <laughs> it wasn't really like that. It, it just happened that the boyfriends I had mostly had very kind mums who invited me for Sunday lunch. And, and that was absolutely wonderful. But you then got married very young, I didn't did. you? I did. I was silly. I mean, I hadn't always got on well with my parents and I think they were quite glad when I went and I don't think they were very keen for me to I think they were just waiting for me to leave so that they could separate which they did quite soon after that I didn't really have anywhere else to go and um, and this particular guy made me laugh and you know it seemed okay and so you know I kidded myself that okay this was it and in those days, uh, girls from my sort of background, their big ambition was to get engaged and married very young. It wasn't really my ambition, but didn't have that much alternative. But I was determined to make a go of it. And so I got married at 19 and um, then had my lovely daughter when I was 21. And that was wonderful. But I was leading a very odd life then because my ex was a policeman and I had never reckoned on being a policeman's wife. I wanted to be a sort of artist's muse in a garret, mm. <laughs> not li live on my grandparents' top floor, <laughs> which was where we ended up until we got allocated a police flat. flat. But um, it was all grist of the mill and after I'd left DC Thompson's, I carried on contributing short stories because we had very little money. And so we, we mostly, uh, certainly everything that I needed to buy came from the short stories. But I was busy writing novels. And after about two attempts that were turned down in quite, quite a kindly way, I actually, I think in the same year, I got a contract for... A, a novel which, to my surprise, appeared on a crime list. So I was stuck writing adult crime novels for five years or so. But I also got a beginning to read book for children published and that was what I really wanted to do. And so I carried on trying to write them. And oh, for about 10 years, um, I made far more money out of the magazines and we couldn't really afford for me to drop them. But I think probably it was the story of Tracy Beaker that um, started to make an impact. And it was the first one of my books to be illustrated by Nick Sharrett and they were very eye-catching. And then, of course, it was the television serial yes. that so many people watched and... It just went on and on and on and on. It's very interesting because you use the word determined and yet your life reads like a book, obviously. And we, I know you and I have had that conversation before, but this is real life. This is things that were going on. And 
your determination doesn't seem to wane in your in your own story at all that it, you keep going that's such a good lesson to to everybody <laughs> i mean it, it's funny because a lot of people think i'm very lucky and i am very lucky and yeah i could have worked twice as hard and still not got anywhere but you can't just give up and you have to work really hard and for a long time bringing up my daughter i was writing at least 3000 words of magazine stories in the morning um when she was at school say and then having about an hour and a half writing the current novel plus um playing a lot and reading to my daughter and and, and having fun with her and my marriage was a quite an old fashioned marriage in that you know i had to cook sort of meat and three veg and a pudding and custard every day and do all the washing i didn't even have a washing machine um and ironing and uh my ex-husband uh liked to have three shirts a day you know one casual one if he was playing golf after work or before work cuz he was on shift work and one um quite sort of nice shirt if he was going out with his mates to the pub and then the third was his police uniform which in those days bizarrely and this is only the 1960s um blue linen with the most difficult little epaulets and things that you had to iron and Sorry. then to cap it all detachable collars that were starched and the first time i tried to tackle them i had to give it about 3 goes and ended up crying oh, over the ironing word. board because i couldn't get the starching right um but you know i learned and but again moaned determined moaned about, moaned about it though. but I, what it it does uh, it all sounds such an incredible story that it, uh, it it's all it sounds like a, a a book it sounds like a a film but this is what really happened to you and that's why your books touch a nerve and that's why kit i know you you wrote a, a book when you were very young and you knew this is what you wanted to do but did you know that you were going to be able to touch a nerve quite like you did no no not at all um i i didn't quite believe that i would ever get something published really and, yes and i mean yeah i that's what i wanted but it was the actual writing of the stories that i particularly liked um and then i was thrilled to be published and you know the first time i saw one of my books in a bookshop it was mm. wonderful um and then i just kept on and on and yet for years if people ask me what i did for a living i go all shy and sort of murmur not children's books you know as if it was a terribly embarrassing thing because i i mean i had that silly imposter syndrome that i think so many people do have um it's not so bad now but then you know i didn't expect it at my age to still to be determinedly writing still enjoying it thoroughly see that's the word enjoying it how important that is because when you talk about your books we'll talk about baby love you and your book in a moment but when you talk about your books you're the, the i see that enjoyment that's why it's so lovely to see you face to face because your eyes light up you you love your books i well i like writing them doing the imagining of them that's what i mean uh, yes 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 uh, Uh, if i have to rewrite bits it's a torture <laughs> <laughs> and and when you know your books get edited now and um everybody's got their opinion about what's working what's not and that's even worse uh, but when they're actually published i've never yet reread a book because um i've gone over it so many times i don't want to and i keep I have this fear that I would actually read a passage and think oh that's so clunky how could I have not seen that um I think it's a bit like 
actors. I, I was so charmed that Dame Judi Dench says that she never watches herself in films because she, she you know, she always has to put her hands over her eyes. And I, I, I do feel, you know, tremendously self-conscious about my books until if I'm asked to read a passage if I'm doing an event with children. That's that's absolutely that's fine. Different. Yes, yes. I remember you were very sweet to my uh, younger daughter and um, she she just couldn't believe that she was meeting you. And you, I, I think that when I was saying about how you love your books, it's also you love the reaction that it causes in young people who read your books. And that must feel quite magical. It does. It really, really does. In fact, my partner Trish says, when I get very old and a little bit do lally and she's wheeling me out in a wheelchair, she's going to pay children to come up to me and say, <laughs> Jacqueline Wilson, I love your books. And she's, she's never going to have to pay anybody. They'll do it naturally. Yeah, but that would make me perk up. Oh, anyway. that's so lovely. Um, so all, all of your books, you I know that I, I've read you speak before about how you feel about that some adults feel that some of the subjects you touch, because mm -hmm. you talk about sexuality, you talk about divorce, you talk about um, uh, depression, uh, child abuse, homelessness... You you touch on all of those issues that some adults think. Oh, I don't want my child mm. reading this, but ch children need to be aware that that's real life. I I think so. I mean, I I never graphic about no, things. No, you did delicately to write from inside a child's head. So there's there's no lurid descriptions yes, of yes, anything. Yes. But um, I I remember reading. Even books I loved as a child in the 1950s, it was such a cosy world. And mummies and daddies, they might be a bit remote or they might be on an aeroplane that crashed so they're conveniently out of the plot. But they weren't there in real life shouting at each other or doing very furtive things behind each other's backs. Um, and children... Children weren't mean to each other in children's books. They they might tease a little bit, but they weren't the way actual real children can be. And I I used to think, you know, why don't people, you know, write about children as they really are? And in fact, quite soon I started to try to find adult books about children, um, which I found much more satisfying because then you could really mm. see, yes, yes, that's exactly what it's like. Um, and so I think, I think I really started writing at exactly the right time because I think the mood was slightly changing and, um, and yet not a lot of people were writing really gritty sort of books mm. and books that had a lot of emotion in them. And try as I might to write it to write to tongue twister time, try as I might to write in a different kind of style. Whenever I started a book, it just came out the way it does. I can't sort of twist it around. I used to be quite adept at, at having the right kind of voice for whichever magazine I was writing for. But that was just writing to pay the bills. Mm. Um, if I was writing from the heart, the whole me ca came pouring out and, and it still does. I think that's why I don't really write for very little children, um, sort of picture books, because I think there you need a lot of gentleness and reassurance and um, it, it's you want to, to be in a kind of Millie Molly Mandine, my naughty little mm. sister sort of world, which is cosy. And I think that's fine. But once you pass six or seven, then then you can introduce a little bit of reality. Uh, yeah, you say a little bit, and I think that's that's wonderful because you're opening their eyes. And there's a, over the past few years, and including, um, obviously, talking about the pandemic and including the war, which uh, young people, uh, you know, what they're having to face over the past three years is, you know, none of us want our, our children, grandchildren, whoever, anyone, um, to, to see the news and to be aware of what's going on. But what books do... You know how much I love books. I think they're, I, I grew up around, my parents 
my uh, had books everywhere. And uh, when my kids were born, I put books on the floor. So the minute they could crawl, there were books. Yes. They devoured yes. books. Um, they need books more now more than ever, don't they? To I escape so. some of the things that yes. are going on. And um, I think you've just said exactly how to get a child reading you don't actually stop it from playing something and say right now you sit down and read a book <laughs> as if it's a punishment yeah. or whatever but if books are very much part of a home it makes it so much easier i wish more people could have books i, th I think i know that you you and i've worked um with certain charities who do give books away and i hope they're still doing so at the moment i think that's very important um what's it like to see the people that were in your head in real life. I know you're asked this all the time. Danny Harmer. I was watching her on Mastermind at the weekend. Oh, somebody told me she was on Mastermind. I'll have to watch it on yes, Catch Up. I'd love very to well. see her. Oh, good. She was Danny. pregnant. Um, and it was lovely. But it was extraordinary because she'll always be Tracy Beaker. But, but, and I know everybody asks you the story, but does it ever feel bizarre that that we see those people that you saw in your head we see them as we now see them does it, that make sense yes I think it, so. it's difficult because no matter how brilliant they are like Danny they're not quite exactly yes. <laughs> the way you've thought about them in your head but it seems to work I've been lucky I can truthfully say that there's not been any adaptation that has made me wince. I've generally been oh, that's thrilled wonderful. to bits with them. And um, uh, Emma Reeves, who's written the recent episodes, um, My Mum, Tracy Beaker, about yes. Tracy being a mum, has become a dear friend of mine. And she's very respectful. She doesn't need to do this at all. But we, you know, have a whole day together, um, you know, having a pub lunch and thinking things through. And... She asked me, now, what do you think if we have so-and-so getting involved with such-and-such? And we talk it through. And you know, she has wonderful ideas. And and yet she's always careful in that in, in case I want to write another one in, in that particular series, that we're not going to be, you know, having different ideas. And it seems to work a treat so far. And, and Emma did the... Um, stage version of Hetty Feather. Yes, I loved which, that. I loved it. I mean, we, it actually launched um, at the Rose Theatre in Kingston, where I lived at the time. So it was marvellous. And um, I'm embarrassed to say we went to the stage performance many times. Oh, well, don't be embarrassed. <laughs> That's lovely. And, and um, when my partner Trish was with me, the cast adored it because always at the end she'd stand up and cheer and it made everybody else stand <laughs> oh, up and that's cheer. that's so wonderful. So, oh, but it was such a lovely adaptation and, uh, you know, the, the cast was magical. Um, the the director was Sally Cookson, who's, you know, fantastic. And one of the producers, Mark Bentley, has become a dear friend of oh, mine. Oh, lovely. And in fact, we happened to email each other and then we kept on emailing. And now it's just like I'm writing a diary. I email Mark every night. Mark, I think, is definitely nocturnal because often I get replies in the middle of the night. <laughs> and then so the next night I carry on and email back. And that's been going on for two years. Oh, how now. lovely. And and it really is fantastic. Friendships are important, it, aren't they? they Relationships are, are yes. important. And um, I mean... I've met him quite a lot of times and I hope to meet him again soon. But it's almost nicer keeping yes. it. You know, we are Aww. special email friends. That's so lovely. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, can we talk about your health now? Because um, you're very open and you talk about it. But you... you it was your heart and your kidney and um, you've I'm had a kidney. hanging on to my liver, although I abuse it with a glass of wine. <laughs> um, uh, but, but you've had a kidney transplant and you, you are remarkably strong-willed and determined. I'm going to go back to that mm. word because I feel that your determination has seen you through all of those things as well. Um, well, I was I was really surprised when... I started to get symptoms of heart failure. And because I've always been a bit of a hypochondriac, I thought, no, foolish woman, you're just having a bit of a panic attack because you're working a bit too hard. And um, that heavy feeling across the chest can be caused by anxiety. And so I waited a while and then it became plain because I'd start to get really tired and then waking up coughing in the in the night um, because my lungs were filling up because my heart wasn't working. Um, and then I did have to be determined, actually, because the first time I went to the doctors, which is certainly not my doctors now, um, they were very nice, but said, yes, well, we'll send you for some tests, but they'll It'll be a little wait, and I'm sure it's to do with your age or whatever. And um, and then it started to get worse, and so I asked for another appointment, and I spoke to a doctor on the telephone, and he again was very reassuring, said no. And then, after a particularly awful night, I thought, oh, goodness, I know there's something really wrong with me, and went back to see yet one more doctor in that practice who took it seriously, who um, did some magic so that we have a blood test straight away and said, come back tomorrow and we'll see. And then when he saw me, he said, well, according to this, and I've had it done twice, technically you should be dead. <gasps> no, he said that. He did, he did. I mean, he's a lovely chap and knew that that I would laugh, although scared too. Yes. Um, and uh, my heart was failing and my lungs were filled with water. And um, so uh, I had more tests done and it was all properly diagnosed. And then... I was considered an emergency, which um, emergency is a, a worrying word. Yes, cool. But you do get in quickly then. And um, and I had a defibrillator um, put into my chest, which is like a small iPhone, which, you know, if you lose a bit of weight, you have this weird sort of rectangle <laughs> sticking out of your bosom. Um, but uh, that make sure that my heart isn't going too fast. It can be all monitored. And um, and then I have pills to take as well. And so that seems I'm lucky. For the moment, my heart's completely okay. Uh, but then, unfortunately, th these things often go hand in glove. About two or three years later, um, I discovered I had kidney failure too. And that's quite dreary because you know your your kidney levels function goes down and down and down until eventually you have to have dialysis and um that so you're tied up to a machine for about just over four hours but then you have to wait for your turn on a machine you, you they do it in three different shifts during the day um and then when you come off the machine um 
you've got to wait and hang on hard to your arm um, with cotton wool because if you let it go, you can have really scary functions of blood. Oh, my word. <laughs> and um, and <laughs> one time I thought it was all fine. It seemed to be fine. So I went to the loo and then, then suddenly... It started spurting everywhere and my jeans and underwear were around my ankles. And I thought, oh, dear God, I don't really want to bleed to death being modest, but how can I go out in this mixed water? Oh, I'm laughing. Oh, my goodness. So so I managed to put my head round the door and say, help, I'm bleeding a bit. And then... um, the nurse, when the nurses came running, and this is actually quite a usual thing that happens in under dialysis ward, and um, and she just pumped, sort of shoved her very strong hand on it and stopped it um, for the while, and then they bound it up, and then I had to sit down for. Um, Half an hour or more with my jeans back in place. Yes, I would say your gi- your jeans pulled up. I'm relieved yes. to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it taught me a lesson: don't be too <laughs> impatient. But um, it keeps you alive. It's not a great way to live. I looked like a zombie because I was incredibly white as a sheet. But apart from that, I could still, I could go in the morning and pre-sign books, do anything Goodness I me. wanted, wow. and then I couldn't really type well because if you moved when you were on the machine if you moved the hand that was tied up with with all the pipes and needles and things um then you could do yourself serious damage or or the thing would come out so um and i couldn't learn to type properly and quickly left-handed so um i just sort of jotted down as best I could notes and once um, for a very long book that I was worried I would be behind hand um, Trish actually crouched on one of those very uncomfy hospital chairs and I dictated to her and she typed and typed and typed oh, wow. for ages. I love the um, sound of Trish. Oh, she is she is fantastic. Uh, but the, though if she listens to this, she'll be oh, <laughs> yes, she'll be mortified. Yes. Oh, why did you say that about <laughs> yes, me? Quite. Um, but it is true. I mean, she she has been a treasure. So I could carry on writing, and I don't think that many people actually knew that I was having the treatment. But then um, she Trish decided that she wanted to donate a kidney to me, but we're not compatible blood and tissue-wise. So there is a wonderful scheme where it's kind of like one of those lottery things in that you, with your blood type and your partner or whoever's wonderful enough to donate a kidney to you, um, go in this kind of tombola thing and if they can match you up with somebody so that the person who is donating actually has your tissue type and blood group and their partner could have (gasps) Trish's you can do a swap Um, we we had to wait to the fourth time to be able to do it and we had almost given up but they did find a match for us. It's done, and I don't know if it's now not anonymous, but certainly it was then. So we never knew. How who long ago was this? I'm very bad on dates. Seven years, maybe right, something like that. And um, um, you, we had the operations on the same day, um, and. They wouldn't let us be together. I, I think it was because they said, no, if one of you isn't making as good progress as yes, the other, you'll worry. Yeah. So, um, but I I didn't feel anywhere near as ill as I thought I would. And you get up the next day. I mean, it hurts like hell to move out of bed, but it's sensible to do that. Uh, Trish was back home within three days and I took about six days. That's incredible. And, and then you have to keep going back to the hospital. Initially, every other day, so they make sure that everything's working. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, when you sit in the car, you have 
cushions on all your sore bits so that you can actually bear to have a seatbelt over you. But it was remarkable how how quickly we both recovered. And, um, and, you know, it's a magic, magical thing. Isn't it? I mean, I found my my father's death certificate when actually I was clearing out my mum's flat after she died. And my father died of... um, uh, left ventricular dysfunction, which is that form of heart heart failure, and kidney failure, exactly no. what I have had. Um, and yet, and he died at 57. And so how wonderful that, that medical matters have actually developed and, and moved on. So um, I suppose I'm on borrowed time. No, you're not. You're going to be here for a very long time. <laughs> well, I'm going to try. <laughs> no, I, I, you are. You are. You're. You're magical. I'm going to keep saying that word as well. So let's talk about Baby Love, the new right. book. Um, Baby Love is set in. Well, it starts in 1959, but it's mostly in 1960. And when you talk to say teenagers now, um, they will look. at all nostalgic, as if they remembered the 60s. They say, oh, so cool then, and and the Beatles, and Mary Kwan, and miniskirts, and and all that psychedelic stuff, and, and the start of all the free love and everything. Well, later on in the 60s, that all happened. Um 1960 was still pretty prim and proper, um, and... I was about that age. I think some people will think it's an autobiographical book. It absolutely wasn't. Um, it's about a schoolgirl who becomes pregnant. But, you know, one did vaguely know people that this had happened to, yeah. partly because there was so little sex education. All, all we had in biology when it came to... We were told you're going to have reproduction this term and like silly schoolgirls, we all got very overexcited (laughs) about this. And what reproduction was, was having a whole load of the most terrible, sad, stiff, dead rabbits reeking of formaldehyde. And we were encouraged to um, cut them up which we really didn't want to do. But then there was one part of the lesson where we <laughs> examined the rabbit's sex organs and either they weren't very well endowed or I could never <laughs> work out which they were. <laughs> but, but that was it. And so that it, was, that's how you learnt about uh, sex. Well, there was also, you know, the, the sophisticated girls in the class who um, were... You know, they. I don't think they really were having exciting sex lives. I, I think they were just pretending. Yeah. But and I mean, you you learnt some information that way, but also got some of it wrong. I'm sure. Um, and and of course, reading and reading adult novels by that time, you could pick up a lot of what was going on, but you didn't really have any kind of practical help. And so the the girl in my book, Baby Love, is Laura. And she's very young. She's only 14. Um, oh, and wow. she has an, a slightly older, much more sophisticated friend who pretends she knows it all and teases my Laura for being so naive and childish. And Laura's hardly ever spoken to a boy, let alone, um, you know, had, had any romantic encounter. Um, and then there's one terrible time she meets up with some French student at swimming pool he can't really speak English he tries to walk her home they end up in a very fumbled encounter which Laura doesn't exactly give her permission for as we would feel nowadays you know shock horror this this is technically rape because Mm. she's under 16 and hasn't given permission in those days it was, prob- I, I have no idea how it would be termed, but I do know that if a girl became pregnant then, an innocent, silly, naive girl, she would be considered bad. Oh. And families would really be ashamed. And um, most 
ordinary families would, if their their daughter became pregnant, wouldn't just tough it out and look after her at home and have a few neighbours talking. They would actually send the girls away to mother and baby homes um, where the girls would stay, have their babies, and then it was definitely the idea that they were told the very best thing for your baby is to have it adopted. You don't want to bring up a baby which would have have a stigma against oh, its name gosh. and i mean i know this is this, recent history we're talking y- yes and there are still women say my age today grieving for those babies that they were when i say forced i don't mean they were pinned down and yes, forced yes. to do it but emotionally blackmailed into doing it for the most part. I'm sure there were a few that hung on to their babies or had some other support. And I do find a way in my book for for it to have a happy ending. But I remember at the time being so appalled that you could have a baby. And um, I always, weirdly, I, I wasn't that keen on getting married or anything. And... And yet I always thought it would be wonderful to have a child who would maybe, um, you know, think a bit like me because nobody really in my close circle was passionate about books or or imaginary things or anything. Um, But I I thought then just, just how terrible it must be, you know, to to part company with that child and not even be told who's adopted them or or ever see them again. And I mean, now, um, I think if you have been adopted and the records are still around, you can trace your mother if she agrees to be traced by somebody who's working for both of you. But um, I don't think you can do it the other way round and and you try very hard to to find your baby I could be wrong I don't know I was very sure of my facts about the mother and baby homes and got several books about it from the 1960s and um, and I certainly um, spot on about lots of young women living in uncomfortable circumstances because I based it on the Church of Scotland Girls Hostel (laughs) You've been there I, I mean we weren't looking after our babies as well, but it was exactly the way yeah. it was. And they weren't cruel places. And um, they they did, girls did have to scrub floors when they were pregnant. And yet, apparently, um, some, some nurse said to me that scrubbing floors is very good for you. <laughs> when you're, you know, eight months pregnant. Well, oh, my word. Yes, I'm not quite sure I would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know still. how to work that one out. But um, I, so I, I did, did have very vivid memories of 1960 and that sort of attitude. And I'm not saying that everybody had that attitude, but it, the vast majority of people thought like that. And that's what is so interesting as you get older, seeing attitudes change so much. And I think, I think, Obviously, it was partly the pill and a really reliable contraceptive. Um, But, you know, just the whole idea of young people. I mean, nearly every family I know, if they're um, late teens and certainly early 20s, unmarried children, um, and brought a boyfriend or girlfriend home, they would be allowed to stay over in the same room together. That would never, ever have happened. Imagine it then, um, yes. Before. And it it's just fascinating that things we think are written stone and that this is what good people do and that's what bad mm. people do, you, you change around. I, I thought, yes. And I think we've come a long, long, long way. As you, you know, we just said, that's recent history. I think there's still a way to to come, especially around the world. I mean, here, we're not too bad at it. I'm ever hopeful. Um, uh, Imagination. Can we end on imagination? Because I have always said how important I love. I have it, still do. I I walk everywhere and I'm picturing all sorts of things. I love my imagination and it's my imagination. It's something that I have. Yes. And I always say to my kids, just keep imagining. it's so important, isn't it? I think so too. And I think you can 
you can start a child having an imagination when they're little babies and just having having a tiny bunny or teddy that they they know is just a, a thing, a thing that they snuggle into. But just sort of saying, oh, look, here comes Teddy. Oh, he's jumping up your arm. He's going, hello, so-and-so. And it seems silly, but that is the way that children can get stimulated to learn how to play by themselves, learn to make up things. And I don't know, if you're walking along the road with your child, I mean, obviously, sometimes you, you say, you know, hurry, hurry up, you've got to get to oh, Morrison's. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've done that with my kids. <laughs> but, I'm sure you've done that with your daughter. Yeah. Of course. But, but also it could be fun if they're interested in dinosaurs, say, what would you do if a dinosaur came round the corner of the road right now? And and just having, not doing it in a plotting way, but just having fun, fun. like that. Yes. And I do think it helps. I think one of the saddest letters I've ever had, I, I, must, I keep all the really interesting letters from children. Um, well, you can't really keep emails now or your computer would explode. But um, was one from a child very matter-of-fact little girl and she said my teacher says I should have an imagination how can I get one oh <laughs> and you just thought well the teacher wasn't being very imaginative just no, telling a child no. off and but she was so she wanted one but she didn't quite know where do they go when we when I mean like I said I, I'm the age I am and I still have one but there is something that happens isn't there that from a child, suddenly the reality comes or something and you think, oh, no, I'm too old for an imagination. Yes, yes. and I think the, the happiest people are the people that have some kind of inner child. And I am not suggesting we become like those silly adverts for a certain kind of sweetie. <laughs> oh, no, I, yes. No, don't drive me mad too. Yes, I know. Yes. But um, the, the thing <laughs> is that it, it, it's... I mean, it stops life being so boring and so tedious. And when you're standing in a queue at the supermarket, looking at somebody and wondering what they were like when they were children or wondering if they could possibly be having some really interesting secret life, even though they look so ordinary. <laughs> I do it all the time. Um, I, I mean, this, this, is, this is the joy, isn't yes. it? really is and you bring joy and uh, uh, you really do Dame Jacqueline Wilson I absolutely adore you your what you give to to young people and what you give to their parents uh, is something very 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 special so from every child out there uh, from every family thank you so much oh thank you Gabby it's been a really wonderful time talking to you thank you for listening coming up next week the greatest impressionist of our time, Alistair McGowan. That Gabby Roslin podcast is proudly produced by Cameo Productions and music by Beth Macari. Could you please tap the follow or subscribe button? And thank you so much for your amazing reviews. We honestly read every single one of them and they mean the world to us. Thank you so much for listening. 